Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. I'm James Keyes. I'm Tunde Wilana. And I'm Amisha Cross. All right, we are here to talk about privilege and subtle racism. Now, when you hear the word privilege, it usually start, uh, it re- usually invokes pretty strong reactions, particularly among white people understand. You know, most white people say, what do you mean white privilege? What? I'm not privileged. I don't know what you're talking about. It usually is a pretty defensive mechanism, but we want, we want to talk about privilege and we want to talk about subtle racism and what that really means and then kind of explore that and explore what's usually talked about, the defenses, I'm colorblind, reverse, reverse discrimination, you shouldn't do that. All those things that are talked about really kind of want to impact, uh, unpack those and really have a really good in-depth conversation. And I have a really great uh, panel here to really discuss that. But before I get to that, if you're watching us on YouTube, please hit subscribe so more people can learn about us. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to us on Google Play, please subscribe, please write a review. More people can learn about Disruption Now, and that's how more people can hear all this great content. But for now, I want to talk about subtle racism. You know, I, I really think about a conversation I I first heard when I was in high school. It was about 1995. I'm just going to give myself away a little bit there. But uh, my... English teacher who was white, and you'll understand why I had to talk about why she's white once you, once you hear the rest of the conversation. She has a conversation with a, a young white male and tells him, I know it's so hard for you. You know, you're applying as a young white man and that you're not a person of color. It's going to be so much harder for you to apply to college because of that. And I'm looking like, what? I'm like, And I'm right in front of her. Like, she's having this conversation right in front of me. And she thinks there's nothing wrong with that. So I have a conversation with her later to try to get her to understand that, well, you know, you know, I don't know what world you're living in, but where, where is it in the world that white men are the most disadvantaged? Like, do you have numbers on that? Is there something that you're, what are you basing that on? And, and I brought her facts and, you know, she, she really kind of, really kind of, kind of thought about it and then kind of said, well, I didn't really think about it that way. But that's one of those things when I think about subtle racism. It's not something, when people, it's not something that you have to just, in order to understand racism, it's not something that's defined as you put a cross in front of your uh, front yard, you're burning it, or you say the N-word. Like, that is the extreme overt racism. And uh, to really bring it into full circle, you know, the when uh, 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 about a month or so ago, uh, Russell Westbrook, who can be a little bit of a wild card, but he got into an argument with the fan. And the first reaction from a lot of people, particularly um, a lot of white fans was that this was something that Russell caused. But once once some uh, investigations were done, it was found out that the that the fan had said some things that were racially charged, and and this happens all the time in in that arena, particularly in Utah. And that that made Kyle Culver come out with his op-ed about privilege and what white people should understand about racism and understand that there is some you have some privilege even if you don't even if you're not living a luxurious life or you're not a multimillionaire, there are things you don't have to go through by the simple existence of being not black. And, and so, Kyle Corver, yeah. Kyle Corver being the white uh, player who correct. plays for the Utah Jets. Correct. Correct. Thank you for, thank you for clarifying that. But have you guys had any examples of subtle racism, of subtle racism? That's my first, first question to you. And then I want to get to the next thing about fault versus responsibility for the majority culture. Well, I'll tell you, um, the root of this, actually, and you, you talked about the reaction from it, the root of it, actually, we, we've gone to a place now where in some circles being called a racist or deemed a racist is worse, is, is, is considered worse or more of an offense than actually being a racist or doing racist things. And, and so anytime you start talking about privilege or you start talking about this person did something that was racist, whether you're saying it's overt 
or or that's subtle, it, it's it arouses something, in this, particularly in those circles where it's it's saying, hey, you know, being called a racist is like the worst thing you can call somebody or the worst thing you can do to somebody. You're, you're better off burning a cross on somebody's yard and calling them a racist. And so when you come from that place, then you can see how the, the any type of it, when that word is brought up, it, it's it's. Yeah commonly referred to as a card as if like we're playing spades or something and you're throwing out the race card. Like that's going to be something that then gets you over the hump or wins your team, the game. When, when you're on the other side of that, it's like, well, no, we're just, you're trying to call things out as you see them and some, some part so that you could try to avoid it or get around it or keep moving forward. Um, you have to identify what you're up against. You know, you you don't want to be oblivious, but in other parts, because you have to call things out so that other people can see if you, if if you don't call it out, then who will wait for your experience in it? So I know that wasn't the direct question you asked, but but I I, I did want to add that into that. But I want to get to, uh, that's a really, that's a good transition to something though, that I like to talk about when you say something is racist and you want to actually get the majority culture, white people to understand where you're coming from, that would shut them down. So I never really did that. But now that you see all this happening, Charlottesville is happening, clearly who the president is who embraces white nationalism, I think maybe we got to call this out a little more now because this, this, this not addressing it directly just wasn't working. So we have to figure out another way, uh, even if it makes some white people uncomfortable, let them know if this is not racism, what is? Amisha, what is your what is your take on this? Because I know you you and I have to both deal in this world. You're in a you're 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 in, you're in media. You're in sometimes you have to deal with conservative media. When you deal with something and you deal with an example that's clearly racist from what we see, how do you explain to, explain to someone who just doesn't understand that point of view? I think first and foremost, it's disarming people. Um, It's easy for people to understand what violent racism looks like. It's a whole lot harder for them to understand what it looks like when it's not out in front. And I always use the examples of issues like what we see in our education system on a daily basis. Um, Teachers having extremely low expectations for black students, regardless of how strong those black students perform. Teachers pushing them to colleges that are beneath them, even though they're scoring higher on their state exams, even though they're scoring higher on their ACT, SAT. Um, People pegging a certain student because they look a certain way being from a community that they may not be from on a personal level i grew up in all white communities have always been a straight a student and was always pointed out as the white black kid which i considered extremely offensive but it is again a crisis of expectations where if you are black the expectation from a lot of people who don't look like you is that you're going to be behind that you're not going to come from a community of people who don't also look like you that you aren't supposed to be in certain spaces working in a conservative media space, I think that one of the hardest things is um, pushing back on a narrative that says racism is a dirty word. We live in America. It's a nation that was founded upon subjugating people. It's a nation that was founded upon ensuring that one race of people stayed were held back and created laws and have consistently, you know, fell back on those in terms of making sure that they held that, um, that race back, especially when it comes to black males. And I think that in, in our conversation about what that actually looks like, we have to, we have a lot of historical context, but we also have a lot of present day, um, more low hanging fruit type issues when it comes to someone not getting chosen for a job interview because of what their name sounds like, or somebody not getting chosen because of the zip code they come from. Um, it's a really strong problem, but most yeah. people wouldn't consider it overt racism exactly with something that happens on a daily basis yeah and and to that point this is a good transition to talk about fault versus responsibility uh kyle culver who's the white nba player who who addressed white privilege dealing with the uh, russell 
Westbrook situation, he said basically that, you know, other white men have to hold other white men accountable because not taking action creates a safe space for toxic behavior among other white people, which I think has some truth to it. But how do we have that conversation and then also talk about disarming? I found that to be very difficult. I've, I've tried to do it, and I think I've had some success. You know, I've, you know, running for office, I've had people support me that are Trump supporters, gave me a ton of money, and we have different views. But I think once I showed them examples, I like to say a counter, I guess I'm answering my own question here, a counter, a counter example is more, is more powerful than a counter argument. So I usually don't always argue, but I show them, look, you know, you know me. I've been pulled over by police officers for no other reason than because my father had a nice car and they said, you, don't, you, don't, you shouldn't be driving that car. And they literally pulled me over, questioned me. That's happened to me so many times when I was a teenager that I can't even count it anymore. And that's an experience that you know, my white counterparts never had to deal with. But how do we get them to understand that? Because you know, we need them to actively be involved to help because they're not going to, you know, we're not going to be able to hold another white person accountable. It's very hard for a black person to do that. And how do we have that conversation with them? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Tunde. That's just me ranting, uh, if you don't. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and, and there's been some great points made. Um, I think that it's hard. I mean, your question is maybe rhetorical, because how do you hold uh, a group accountable that is in a majority because what you're saying is, is very valid, that these Trump supporters who supported you, part of part of probably what the benefit of the whole relationship was the exposure, right? They're exposed to you, you're exposed to them. And, and it's funny how when people are exposed to each other of different groups, a lot of times walls start coming down. But, you know, it goes back to Amisha's point. This country was founded a certain way. And you still have about 70% of this country, which is, you know, white Americans. So not all that 70% is going to find... Um, areas and ways to easily assimilate with people that look like us. And so, unfortunately, there's a large percentage of those people that may not get a chance to assimilate with others that are going to continue believing um, certain stereotypes and certain things. And one of the things that, um, that I thought of and I wrote a note when Amisha was, was making her comments was based on our history, you know, this is only the last 50 years of kind of integration where, um, at least on the surface, there's been an attempt of equality. Prior to that, remember, to justify slavery, there were excuses from the Bible use. There were excuses that we were less human. We didn't feel pain the same way, all these kind of things. So you have also this generation, this cultural generational kind of um, um, uh, I don't know, memes that have been set into our country where a lot of people don't look at us as equivalent humans. And I think that's what it was interesting during the Obama administration. And this isn't to defend Obama politically. I'm just saying that we can agree with someone, sorry, disagree with someone politically and still feel that they're an equal human being. And what we saw with the Obama administration, how easily a lot of white Americans just wanted to believe that he was illegitimate, that he was born in another country, that he was not the religion he said he was. And the way I looked at that was, because it's not politically correct to come out and use the N-word and kind of have the more violent racial response than these subtle ways. Passive aggressive ways racism. That for, for them, they were able to justify in their mind, well, because I, my subconscious doesn't believe that a black person could actually ascend and be smart enough to get there on their own, there had to be some illegitimate way that right. he kind of got there. Right. And that so I think sense. that's an example of how this kind of subtle stuff still permeates our society. That makes sense. Amisha, you wanted to say something. 
Yeah, I, I have something to add to that first. I was going to say in, in many ways, Obama humanized the black uh, black family and black culture in a way that uh, not only did it for Caucasian individuals, but I would also argue for the black community. That, and as much as we talk about heritage and excitement over all things black, I think that it meant something to have an African-American male who had a strong African-American female who's also educated by his side, a beautiful family together, which is not Agreed. something that we see commonly in our community. And I think that it helped to shed the fact that it's not possible, even for people who look like us. But beyond that, I would also say that... Um, while we look at this, it's very important to acknowledge that, yeah, we have had a very rough time, and I don't think that that's going to end anytime soon. But one of the things that I appreciate about Kyle Corver was that as a Caucasian male who was playing in a black a predominantly black sport. Um, he came out and he made them understand as a white man. I think that at the end of the day, we're going to have to have more white allies and more white people to stand up yep. and carry the water with their own white people. Black people have been doing this and trying to get white people to come along for a really long time. Um, at the end of the day, what we see now in many ways is a lot more separatism than we even saw during the height of Jim Crow. Correct. More black people don't live amongst or in the same communities as white people today than then and don't work in the same capacity. We're seeing these great divergences, especially amongst um, white men and black men when it comes to education, educational options and job opportunities. I think that at the end of the day, if we really want this to work, there's going to have to be a certain level of cohesion and unity where they get to actually see our experience. Yes. And I don't mean through the lens of a headline. Yes. There to be people who are brought into the community. They've got right. to be people who see what the police do. They've got to be people who see uh, what happens to us in these social settings and things like that right. and have an understanding. And see is the key word, Amisha, because another defense that is often put up, right, is that I am colorblind. I don't see color purple people, green people, which I don't know any purple or green people, by the way, but whatever. It's, it's, it doesn't matter to me. But the truth is, no one is, no one is blind. Uh, and what you're, when people tell me that, I say, what you're saying is you don't see my experiences. I say, you don't see what I'm going through. You can't be colorblind unless you are actually blind. So you're not. So I, well, but not, that's a not, cop seeing out, me, not seeing me is that's exactly right. It's a shutdown. It's a cop out. Go ahead, James. That's a cop out because when you say I'm colorblind, it, it, does that then insinuate that all of the people around you who aren't colorblind, you don't see their injustices either? <laughs> you know, it actually says, hey, you know, I'm 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 agnostic. I'm ambivalent. I don't care if something bad happens to you because of your color. I'll just deny that it was because of your color because I don't see color. So it actually is going the wrong way to say I'm colorblind, things like that. What you can say is I try to treat people the same no matter what, or I try to treat people based on the way they approach me or the way they come to me. Now, that that doesn't have to be – that's not the same as colorblind. That's just being a rational and reasonable person. Right. Um, but the defense mechanisms that we that we see, um, they're very prevalent. I, I wanted to mention another one that, that we see often, and this one actually is – um, something that you'll see you know, that, that's still considered politically correct, at least to some degree. When, you, when you'll see a, a black person who has a level of success or that gets a job somewhere, oftentimes you'll see, or that get, gets into college somewhere, that person will be referred to as an affirmative action yep. person or a person that's, that's only there because of this program that's set up to try to rectify all of the times and all of the instances where black people are denied things yep. that they should be getting getting based on their their either their their talent or their hard work or even being in the right place at the right time. And so wanting to point to that as a reason to say this is why this person is in this position or this is why this person is is has been able to achieve success is a defense mechanism. It's not wanting to acknowledge that hey, you know, like 
there are smart people of all races. There are dumb people of all races. And hey, that's just somebody who is smart. And they they did what they had to do. Um, People weren't in the college admission scandal. So (laughs) (laughs) but um, but I I think we should acknowledge, though, that when we say 70 percent, you know, or 60 something percent of of the country is white, it's not we're not talking that it's not it's it's never been that all white people are uniform in this and that black people need to be oppressed. There have always been uh, white people who have been allies for equality, white people that push truly. These are the ideals of the country. And if you ask, how do you bridge the gap? That has to be where you start. You have to start the country definitely hasn't lived up to what it says in, at the beginning, said in the beginning, and it said through a lot of its aspirational speaking. But that's what we have to understand is that stuff is aspirational. That's where we're trying to get to. That's not saying that's where we are. When we say all men are created equal, we said that while also then putting in the constitution of three-fifths clause, you know, yep, saying yep. That, that black people are worth three-fifths, yep. which obviously isn't equal <laughs> to one, you know? So we, we had that stuff built in, but the system was set up in place actually for progress to continue to happen, which it has happened. But one piece that I always look at, I know I've talked to Rob about this a lot is the economic piece. The more threatened people are and, and the more they feel threatened economically, the less they are interested in hearing about social justice. Right. The more comfortable people are. I don't think it's a coincidence. I, I, I say this as shorthand, but I think the New Deal directly led to the civil rights movement or it enabled it to to have the legs right. that it did, because that level of comfort and that big middle class where people are saying, hey, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. Let, right. let, let's let these right. guys do some stuff. I, too. I think it's a they common threatened by. It. Yeah, I think it's and a common. So that's that, a big that piece it. also. It's a combination well, of that. I agree with that partly. What I'll say is the New Deal in combination with uh, World War II and not being embarrassed to say we're going to fight for freedom. And then you got people on TV where you're clearly oppressing a lot of your population. Well, people then, that, but that people TV, weren't there. Exactly. TV, exactly. TV also, so, yeah. so that tells you the, the influence that you can have through media, which is why we're doing this show, too, because there's not enough perspectives out there. So we need to do both. Uh, thinking about the defenses, you know, reverse racism is something that's thrown up there. If you remember Jordan Peele a while back, he 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 put this up and said that he doesn't see himself hiring a white male as a lead for any of his roles. And that obviously made a lot of white people upset uh, because they said this is reverse racism. You're you're doing horrible hey, things been forever. Literally, <laughs> there are directors today who have been around for 30, 40 plus years with strong blockbusters that never had black leading roles. Ever. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I mean, like, I wonder, I'm looking at, like, I, when people say me that, tell me that, just like, just like my English teacher talked to that, that person to say, like, everything stacked against you as a white male, and I explained why I thought affirmative action was not even adequate, but I, I put this comparison to her. I said, look, it's like we're playing a football game. We've been playing for four quarters. The, the score is 125 to nothing. And all of a sudden, the refs say, okay, in the last two minutes, we're going to play fair, but we're not going to give you any touchdowns. That's not fair. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, and I had to get her to understand, like, th- that's not fair in context. So anyway, tune day. Um, look, we got to accept that some people are just not going to um, um, hear the message. And we're also living in a trans, uh, like a transformative period. It's funny. I've got a, a client of mine who's white and um, he's 73 now. And he was born in the Bronx in New York and grew up playing stickball with all you know Puerto Rican kids and black kids. And he moved to South Florida when he was nine in the 50s when it was still segregated. And he has got this funny story that he says, man, he goes, Tunde, I came home. I was in the fourth grade, man. And I came home and asked my mom, where are all the black kids at? And he goes, that's my mom sat down and explained to me. We're in the South. Like, this is different. 
And he said he kind of never understood it and, you know, the, the whole thing. And so what it, what it amazed me when I'm talking to him is I'm like, okay, here I am alive. And I was born after the civil rights movement. You know, I'm 41 years old. I'm a grown man. But I'm actually talking to somebody who was alive when segregation was legal. And what was interesting was not so much, you know, it was funny, his comments to his mom. But he then went to explain to me, like, when they started the first, like, rounds of integration, he said there was one black kid that was put in his school and he felt sorry for his kids. So he was one of the few kids that ever talked to that kid. And he said that a lot of the other white kids would, would go to him and say, well, why, why would he want to come to this school? They have their own school and we have our school. And it was interesting for me to hear that from him because it's a different, whole different like world than what we grew up in. Right. And, and kind of like on a real level. And that's got me thinking of a lot of the people today that, um, Politically, uh, when we watch TV, they're the ones in the street that look fearful of the demographic changes in this country. So unfortunately, part of my, you know, I've said this to some of my older friends and clients as a joke, like, hey, man, us young people are seeing, are sick of you guys still trying to fight the last battles of the civil rights movements and the feminist movements of the 60s. I think part of this is, is going to be 20, 30 years from now when we're all old farts and no one was around for segregation and civil rights, that a lot of this stuff might calm down. I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. The, re- the reason or why it I, may go back the re- because exactly, you know, people exactly. don't remember where it was. Exactly. Now, I'll say this though. I, I, right. I do need to say, I, I actually disagree um, with uh, Peel's position on that. Um, while I understand the sentiment that there are plenty, there's plenty of representation, so to speak, of, of white actors in lead roles in Hollywood. Um, I think you need to be the change that you want to see. Um, and so for him to come out and say that, that in my view, essentially justifies someone else to come out and say the opposite, um, in that, oh, well, you know, rest in peace. Why don't you just go to John Singleton if you want to lead role for a black guy? I mean, that's, you go to big, that's called Hollywood. That's what they, but they, I understand they, that. I understand that. But for black no. people and the types of movies that he's making have a very strong recognition among black culture. And I think that as he continues to try to do that, he never said he wasn't going to have white people in the movie. He said they weren't going to be in the movie. Well, you're okay, but I don't see the point yeah, of having to say that, though. I don't see it, like it, yeah. that's like the people who say. Let me finish this point because that's like the people who say, "Oh, when they're going to cast Tessa Thompson in Thor, oh well, how can she play one of those roles? Those roles are for white people or Idris Elba. You know, how are you going to play those roles? Like th- that stuff goes both ways, yeah, and so he can he can do it. He can do it if he wants, but I don't see what per- what 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 he's serving by coming out and saying that. Why come out and say, "Hey, look, I'm going to be closed minded about this, and I'm not." going to be the change that i want to see and like I, I just don't agree i don't think you need to do that if you want to if that if you want to be about it then fine because you know what nobody's going to notice because hollywood is so far swung the other way but out here talking about it i don't see what you're trying to advance other than saying hey you know what i don't think the same rules should apply to me that apply to other people which is not the type of society i'm trying to promote I agree with you. I think yeah. that he could have done that without necessarily making a headline. But yeah, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm yeah. just saying, like, yo, what, what are you doing? Like, why do you have to come out and say that? Like, is, is it supposed to be funny? Or is it supposed to be you thumbing your nose at the man, which is fine, but that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with that approach. The one point I did want to make, though, is that in a lot of these conversations, when we talk about um, not so overt racism, that it's talked about in the context of looking at partisanship. And I will tell you, as somebody who is a millennial who grew up in the South, but was born in Chicago and moved back to Chicago at 18, 
at the end of the day, um, it's not, it's multi-generational. Yep. It is multi-regional. Yep. It is also available in every single party that exists in this country. <laughs> I have never seen, I grew up in Mississippi, racism like I did on the north side of Chicago, where they voted for Barack Obama twice, but don't want mm-hmm. black kids going to school with their kids. So at the end of the day, I'm like, it does not matter. It's not a contextual thing that only happens because of Trump's ascension, ascension to the presidency or because of the growth of the conservative movement. It exists within the Democratic Party as well. Yep. There are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, and a lot of this, I think um, Tunde mentioned earlier, goes back to a lot of our historical context where there is a belief that for whatever reason, a certain race is better than another. And they do not want that level of mixing in socially, in education, or anything else that allows you to elevate economically well some of that though types of laws that they create i I see that and i just agree with you saying you know like frankly but i will say that some of it seems to be promoted in the sense that media images that we are given whether it's the news whether it's any type of thing that you see you are taught if you watch a lot of television watch a lot of movies that black people should be a level under uh white people like that's something that you fear and racism themselves Exactly. Exactly. Like that's something you will receive. You you see that effect in black people. You see that in black yep. people where they have lower expectations that's or say, hey, I'm going to go get, deal with a white lawyer here because I need the real deal yep, you know, or, yep. or anything like that. So that's something that actually we're, we're getting into our eyes, into our ears all the time. And you have to work extra so in defense to, of to John, try to counteract and, that. In defense of Jordan, that's probably what he was trying to say out loud. The fact that like he he believes that it's better for uh, have a black male lead in most of his movies. Because, you know, and that, and that, hey, that's man, what, he can speak for himself, though, and that's not what he said. I know it's not I mean, what he said. That's my only point. I, 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 I mean, I no, no, it's true. It's true. He, he, he could have said, said it better. Right he could have said it better. Go ahead, too, I, I think what you just ended with, Jimmy, reflects really the deep uh, psychological um, state that the American culture, back to Amisha's original point about our country's history. Remember, our country brought people that were humans from Africa to be property as slaves And there was a certain way that that was justified morally because most human beings are moral. And so for whites, they were then taught to believe that they're superior and blacks were taught to feel feel and and that they were inferior. Some of the ways that was what was done, and I'll I'll probably be uh, this may be inflammatory for some people, but one of the ways that's done is is um, no, but, you know, I'm gonna go there with a religion. You got a white Jesus who is seen as God. That's very powerful from a psychological perspective. Now, we all know he was born in Middle East, so I'm, I'm guessing he'd look like an Arab, probably really. But Europeans took the image and made it like their own, which is understandable. So my point is, is that from the founding of our country, the Africans that were brought here and the next generations that were born here and were given Christianity were already taught that, hey, the God looks like them, and therefore, that must be better. And then a lot of whites kind of had that attitude, too. Well, hey, God looks like us. They don't look like them. So obviously, we must remember the Mormon religion until 1979 preached that blacks were the descendants of sinners. And I don't have anything against the Mormon religion, but that's just a fact. So 
we're still dealing with, we're just a few decades away from a lot of these things that people really thought in their mind. And they still, they still think, my only thing of what you say is that they still think it. Those young, there was a bunch of young people out there with tiki torches saying racist things two years ago. They're young, they're they're younger than, they're 15 years younger than me. They're out there saying, Jews will not replace us. I mean, this is not, it is, I don't think it's gone away. I want to. I want to believe it has. I think there we've made some progress, obviously. But these things, uh, you know, history is ever present, as James Baldwin says. It, it, history doesn't repeat itself; it rhymes. And you know, this institutionalized racism is a just a hard thing to shake here. You know, though we don't have uh, laws that out that outwardly or overt say colored only, we still have. And I want to actually go to this point about what happened with Luca Roll in. Florida with that with that young with the young man on his way to McDonald's hanging out like many kids do and a bunch of kids came to McDonald's most of those kids were black so what happens when you have a bunch of black kids together usually that are young somebody calls the police and what happens when the police comes there it often gets escalated to unnecessary levels and that's what happened you had a young man who saw a phone get dropped he picked it up He gets maced, he gets hit, he gets slammed over and over again. He's 15 years old. He's never been in trouble. And guess what? The prosecutors initially charged him with, of course, the the BS charge that you always get charged with when they have nothing to charge you with, disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, which is usually, when when anyone's charged with those, I almost think almost always it's they don't have a case. And yeah, the default. Yes, yeah, the default, <laughs> right? Default. They yeah. ended up throwing this case out, so that's the beginning, so that's the good news. But what I want people to understand is that as we talk uh, to our white brothers and sisters, we need them to see that if that was one of their kids, they would be outraged. For just picking up a phone, you, you, get, you get your face beat in, essentially, for no reason, because you weren't McDonald's. You did nothing. He had no criminal record. He didn't say anything to the cops. He didn't have a weapon. He did nothing. And had this not been recorded... He might have been charged with disorderly conduct for picking up a phone, for picking up a phone. This is where we're at. And so when I, when, I, when I think about where we're at, yes, we made progress. But in some places, I think we are also seeing more challenges. There are more, there are more men in jail right now, according to Michelle Alexander, uh, there are uh, black men in jail and on parole than there were in, in slavery in 1850 right now in the United States of America in 2019. And that's because of there's no other reason except for racism. And we have and we need help. We can't be the only ones talking about racism if racism is going to be solved. That's my point of view as we really conclude this. I want to give you guys some final points to close. Well, I, I do want to add a little context. When you, when you say it's because of racism, you know, specifically that it's it's about how the law enforcement and the justice system enforces laws and how aggressively they, they go after certain people and how and I think that's really because of racism because they don't see it. They don't see the no, I'm, I'm just trying to give some yes. context to what you mean by that, because saying it's just racism almost sounds like you're trying to pass the buck. But yeah, there are people who commit crimes of all races. There Correct. are people who try to get away with stuff of all races. But if you take one race and say, hey, we're going to really go after these guys and the others, you say, eh, you know, we're not too worried about those guys. We're going to let those guys slide. We're not either not going to go after them as much or if they do get popped and they get arrested, then, you know, we're not going to sentence them as much or we'll let oh. them do more diversion programs and or, things like or, that. Or, or and that stuff that, is empirical. You get that to treat them like a, like, like, like that's empirical, that but also the stuff that you can see that's a little more intangible. Like I have seen white mass murderers treated better than Luca was, you know, right after the shootings in Florida. They're able, they're able to get these guys 
not rough them up. Some even I think one guy got taken to Burger King afterwards. Like they, they, just yeah, to see, remember, yeah, remember the one at the church? The church. Yes, yeah, yeah, the guy at the church. Yeah, they're able yeah. to see the human so was experience. Was that South Carolina? Yeah, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they're able to see them as human. That's yeah, that's was, the point. I was going to say that like there's a humanity that's added, and there's an idea that you know this could be our kid. There is never that same thought when the child does not look like theirs. And, and, we, and we've seen that, you know, day in and day out. But to James's point, there are some very stringent um, sentencing regulations that were obviously put in place to attack a certain group of people, in addition to um, the fact that most other races will get off on citations. Um, and from working in criminal justice reform, one of the issues that bothers me the most is that there are a lot of very low-level things um, that African-Americans are placed in, uh, in jail for on a daily basis, many of which would be let out within an hour if they had that, mm-hmm. if they could afford bail. And I mean low bails, in many cases under $100. Mm-hmm. So really over-incarcerating impoverished yep. people and people who really you know, didn't commit real crimes. If we're talking about somebody who crossed the street at the time they weren't supposed to cross the street mm-hmm. or standing in front of a building waiting for a bus, the ridiculous things that people are getting arrested. And then, and then they end up on parole yep. and you know, with probation and then violations and then, like we've seen that with Meek Mill, Mill, we've seen that with with the, the discussion of yep. the guy who was meeting with Nipsey Hustle. Yep, it's like a money, it's a money system. system. It's, it's a money, it's, it's a money system. Well, That's what people. Let me know. let me chime in because you guys are making some great points. I mean, I think part of when you're talking about like you know the, the way that some of these um, white uh, killers have been treated versus maybe black you know criminals or suspects. It goes right back to that thing about humanity. I mean, you made a good point, right? That that they can look at some of these people, even though they did a crime, as okay, this guy's a human being. So you know, if he's hungry, maybe I can still get him some food, or or I don't need to beat him up now that I caught him. And I think it goes back to, and it's not just blacks. This is just a racism thing. I think this goes back to, like, I know we have problems with our immigration system, and it's broken, and we got people, you know, rushing the border. But the child separation thing, if these people were blonde, blue eyes. I don't think the whole country would be so easily to look away when a seven-month-old is being separated for their mother. When they're and already you're separating, you're also talking about a country that's used to separating children. I, I agree. I agree, a hundred percent. But that's my point, right? Because those people were seen. I mean, there's a great scene in in um, Twelve Years a Slave when a lady's crying because her kids got sold, and you know there was a Caucasian lady that kind of made a comment, "Oh, she'll forget about it by tomorrow," almost like as if it was like a mother dog that just got the puppy you know sold away and it's like all right she'll forget about it you know so this this just idea that we don't have the same feelings we don't have the same you know um um, kind of humanity the other thing is you know what you guys are talking about is not only it's 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 racial but remember we have now a system that's built on it so there's a power structure in the political side that has benefited for the whole history of america of pitting and putting whites in fear of the other. And for many, so you know, most of money. the history, the, the other was us. But like it's like after 9-11, the other became Muslims and Arabs. And then now the other is kind of, you know, the south of the border brown people. So that our country has this constant history of driving wedges in order for political gain of a few. And then the last thing I'll say is um, part of the conversation reminded me of the Justice Department um, findings of the, after the Ferguson incident. And one of the findings I remember was that the mayor was putting pressure on the police department to raise about $5 million a year in revenue through citations and yep. fines because he didn't want to raise taxes 
on the wealthy side of town, like raising the property taxes. So it was also like an example of, well, let's go, let's go beat up these poor people and keep harassing them for little violations to appoint a mission and get them incarcerated for a hundred dollar bails and all this, because we need to raise revenue off their back because we don't actually tax people who have the money to pay a little bit more in taxes. So I think all that kind of plays into just everything that's kind of culminated to where we're at with these different situations in the different parts of our country. Yep. No, that's a great point. And when you think about it, as we close, everyone wants to be unified and say, why can't we just be unified and work together? I tell people, yes, I believe in unity. I want unity. I want us to get there. But if you want if you want, if you want us to be unified, then you, that, that requires us to be intentional. It requires us to confront things that are uncomfortable. It requires us to look at things. You can't be colorblind. You need to take your blinders off and see what's going on with multiple people because people are suffering. Uh, you know, there, there is no real true unity, even if, the, you know, absence of tension doesn't mean unity. That's not what that means. That, that, that just makes some people feel better. But there are still people suffering. We can do this. We can rise better as Americans. I know we can, but eternal, eternal vigilance has always been, always will be the price of liberty. Stay woke if you want to stay free. I'm Rob Richardson. I'm James Keyes. I'm Tunde Romana. I'm Amisha Cross. And we'll see you next time.